Good afternoon, everybody. Um, this morning, Barry Watt gave a paper on Hannah Sigal, and it turned out that her granddaughter is here in the room. I'm going to talk about Jacques Lacan. I'm not sure whether any of his grandchildren will be here, <laughs> but I hope that my talk will engender further interest for addressing the relation between psychotic experience and the subject. First, I will present key theoretical ideas, and later in the paper, I discuss a case as well. Lacanian psychoanalysis has a precise hypothesis about psychosis, assuming that psychosis makes up a structure. The hypothesis of psychotic structure is not the only or the ultimate conceptual tool Lacan and later Lacanian analysts start from, but it is a crucial point of departure. For example, later elaborations especially concern psychosis qua jouissance-related position or drive-related problem, and psychosis qua a particular way of creating psychical reality, which Lacan conceptualizes through mathematical knot theory. Yet, I will only briefly touch these later elaborations in my lecture today and instead concentrate on the hypothesis of structure. This hypothesis orients Lacanian practice and is quite precise. The idea of structure might suggest that psychosis is in essence underlying the symptoms and acts of our patients, like a core biological or psychological constitution. Yet, structure has nothing to do with this. Structure concerns the way in which an individual represents him or herself via language and manages or fails to be constituted as a subject. With respect to language, Lacan focuses on the signifier in particular. The signifier is the elementary building block of language. The linguistic signs we use are signifiers to the extent that they do not have a strict signified or meaning. Meaning related to signifiers is context-dependent. What is crucial concerning Lacan's position with respect to the subject is that at the level of the unconscious, questions related to existence are formulated. In line with the Nietzschean dictum that man is a sick animal, Lacan assumes that the determination of human functioning by biology or by environmental factors is marked by a fundamental lack. His work on the mirror stage makes this clear. Natural maturation and instinctual patterns only partly determine who we are, thus leaving us at the level of being with an unpleasurable need called manque à être in French, 
or translated a lack of being or a want to be. Organic discord, says Lacan, necessitates a symbiosis with the symbolic. Indeed, in dealing with the unbehagen at the level of being, we make use of words or signifiers and can live in terms of what culture and social contexts define as good. By using the signifier and naming our own position with the personal pronoun, our precarious lack of being is turned into an articulated question of existence. However, the big other, qua system of signifiers, so this is a synonym in Lacanian language, the big other is a synonym for the system of signifiers. So the big other and the small other, which refers to the interpersonal figure, these figures only provide a partial answer to our want to be. Fundamental, self-directed, epistemic questions, who am I? And questions concerning the, inten the intentionality of the other, what do you want, are never fully resolved. Instead, they set up a fundamental experience of disorder and mobilize existential questions, which Lacan situates at the core of the unconscious. More specifically, he points out that the unconscious is organized around a set of existence-related questions or dilemmas, which no signifier can answer for once and for all. These questions concern one's position with respect to intimate topics like, first of all, dealing with parenthood and authority. Who am I as a child in relation to my parents? And who am I as a parent in relation to my child? First question. Second question, what is life in the light of death? Third question, he situates at the level of the unconscious, concerns sexuality in relation to love and procreation. And a fourth one concerns sexuation. That is, the question as to whether or how one is a man or a woman. Daily life confronts us with these issues. And while no signifier can conclusively determine our identity, the stories we tell and the thoughts we have bear witness to the human attempt to resolve the vacillating position we occupy at the level of existence. What is more, this vacillation as brought to the fore in our use of language vis-à-vis -vis questions related to existence determine the subject. From birth on, we see people around us and through self-reflexivity, we are aware of the fact that we are. 
we see these points, these points of Mank Aetre. We not only see them, they are issues to us because we lack an automatic answer. Answers have to be formulated and in the very process of articulating such answers, different structural possibilities might be discerned. And crucial in this context is Lacan's distinction between neurosis and psychosis. These make up different structures because they imply a different way of dealing with the lack of being. You might all be aware of the fact that Lacan's works are cruelly complex. Yet, this does not imply the assumption that all human beings are existentialist intellectuals who spend all night discussing and reflecting on the nature of human intentionality and identity. Not at all. Lacan hypothesizes that in and around symptoms, specific ways of dealing with this lack of being are expressed. Indeed, the way we deal with human intentionality and identity is to be situated at the level of the unconscious. And this is why in Lacanian practice, much attention goes to discerning crucial symptoms a patient is confronted with and to studying how mental suffering is related to self-directed epistemic questions, so who am I, and questions concerning the intentionality of the other. What do you want? This approach implies that the Lacanian project goes radically against the DSM way of approaching the symptom. The DSM takes the symptom for granted and classifies them as psychotic based on a priori grounds. We have a list of predefined psychotic symptoms and if a patient if a patient's symptoms sufficiently resemble the predefined symptom, it is psychotic. In Lacanian psychoanalysis, by contrast, the symptom has no face value. We never know what it implies. It's only by listening to the patient's stories about the origin, the nature, and the contextual embedment of the symptom that we might get hold of the broader structure it bears witness to, that is, of psychotic structure. In 1959, Lacan argues that in neurosis, the question pertaining to the intentionality of the other is addressed in terms of a lawful principle, which is presumed at the basis of the other's actions. In this clinical structure, neurosis, the subject takes shape starting from the belief that the other's actions are not random, but guided by meaningful principles, 
social and cultural laws determine what the other does or should do. That's what the neurotic believes. Lacan calls this lawful principle the or a name of the father. Starting from this signifier, this name of the father, which is accepted in neurosis, sense can be made of what he calls the desire of the mother. Considered from the angle of the name of the father, the mother or the other is a fairly regulated entity one can rely upon. Hence, for example, the experience of disappointment or anger when the other doesn't live up to one's expectations. In psychosis, by contrast, the name of the father or a name of the father is lacking. It's radically missing. It is foreclosed, says Lacan. A name of the father or a master signifier is a signifier that is taken for granted and a means by which the subject can manifest itself at a moment when it's presumed to take a position in relation to the other or in relation to questions related to the existence that make up the unconscious. A name of the father is a signifier in the name of which one speaks and takes a position vis-à-vis the other. For example, imagine that I'm a young father with a young toddler, and that at times my child says nasty things like, Nanny is wee-wee. At such a point, I might intervene and tell my son to behave. Yet, typically, toddlers don't obey when one says this, which brings me to say something like, you have to stop doing this because daddy says so. In this example, the signifier daddy is the name of the father. It is a signifier in the name of which I position myself and guide the child. What is characteristic of psychosis is that at specific events in life, which typically involve others, the subject fails to make use or find such a master signifier or a name of the father to represent him or herself in relation to these questions pertaining to existence. The net result of such a confrontation is that one no longer experiences continuity at the level of mental life. Indeed, Lacanian theory assumes that we experience continuity at the level of mental life because we have signifiers or representations by means of which we make sense of the world. For example, when I'm giving a lecture, I'm not perplexed by the fact that people are staring at me. <laughs> Nor am I perplexed by the fact that occasionally one person says something silently into the ear of the other. I'm not perplexed because I have a conceptual frame through which I can make sense of what is happening. And I have such a parameter because I trust or accept that the signifier lecturing 
names and organizing names and organizes what is happening in this room. Thanks to the signifier lecturing, I can situate myself as speaker and the others as audience, which organizes my mental representations. Within this logic, when do basic manifestations of psychotic structure come to the fore? It will be when an appeal to position oneself via the signifier is made, but no support is found in any signifier which interrupts the signifying chain or train of thoughts that makes up our experience of reality. Indeed, Lacan's structural idea concerning psychosis implies the hypothesis that foreclosure pertaining to questions related to existence at the level of the unconscious determine the outbreak of specific psychotic phenomena. This means that as a result of such confrontations, psychotic phenomena such as hallucinations, delusions, or mental automatism might come to the fore. Clinically, these phenomena all concern being overwhelmed by strange experiences one cannot make sense of and bear witness to a more fundamental inability to manifest oneself as a desiring subject by means of the signifier. Specifically, mental automatism concerns an often subtle experience of disarraying interruption occurring in the continuity of how a person experiences him or herself and or the world. Lacan borrowed this concept, the concept of mental automatism, from the early 20th century French psychiatrist Gaëtan Gassian de Clérambault. Suddenly, or gradually across time, one's own thoughts, utterances, emotions, impulses, actions, actions, bodily sensations come across as disordered in nature. On the one hand, strange elements might be added to the habitual self-experience, where a feeling of being intruded upon stands to the fore, and in that case, an invading parasitic component destabilizes the subject. On the other hand, the interruption might also result from a blocking inhibition. In that case, one becomes deprived from what is familiar. And in both cases, an experience of estrangement is produced. The coordinates from which one situates oneself in the world no longer seem valid. Empty-handed, the subject is confronted with fundamental changes at the heart of his privacy. Indeed, at that point, two possibilities come to the fore. Either one ends up utterly perplexed in that the breach in the signifying chain is presented in all its rudeness. In that case, the signifying chain comes to a halt. Signifying articulation stops with a dead end, 
which will often be accompanied by the belief that the shadow of death has fallen onto one's life. The other possibility is that instead of dying out, the signifying chain starts to function in uncontrolled ways and thus alternative signifiers alluding to the failed naming resulting from foreclosure are produced in the subject's reality. Clinically speaking, this implies that upon encountering an elementary phenomenon in a patient's discourse, we have to construct, through case formulation, how mental automatism might be associated with specific events of failure in representing oneself by means of the signifier. What is specific to Lacan's account of mental automatism is that it enables us to grasp why phenomena of mental automatism or hallucinations and delusions touch on specific contents. Foreclosure implies that specific issues concerning sexuality, death, and human intentionality cannot be addressed in terms of any assumed law, which implies that the subject cannot manifest itself in an organized way. Yet, this does not imply that these issues themselves would not be articulated. Far from that, these questions are manifested in particular ways, that is, in a real way, through automatic phenomena, hallucinations or delusions. Hence, for example, Schreber's daydream. His daydream that it must be beautiful to be a woman making love, which is an automatically imposed thought he at first cannot make sense of. The thought occurs the moment he fails to assert his masculinity or his authority after he lost the elections for parliament. Masculinity collapses and suddenly a feminizing thought overwhelms him. Characteristically, the moment the ability to orient oneself as a subject by means of the signifier is absent, another, more threatening position comes to take its place. This is the position of being the object of the other's jouissance. Jouissance is a typical Lacanian concept. It refers to a kind of enjoyment that is not bound to the pleasure principle. Usually, one does not experience jouissance. Rather, it is an internal or external force that takes one by surprise. In, in, in neurosis, jouissance is limited because we have an internal law, a name of the father. In psychosis, by contrast, it occasionally overwhelms the subject completely, since foreclosure leaves no anchorage in the symbolic order. Take, for example, the case of Aimé, which is the central case study 
in Lacan's doctoral dissertation. This patient fails to occupy a mothering position in relation to her son. And suddenly, it comes to her, to her mind that people want to hurt her baby, which indicates that she occupies the position in which she is the object of the other's jouissance. In her case, this not only results in distrust, but also in violent acts towards the people that she doesn't trust. These violent acts, which we call passage à l'acte in Lacanian language, so these violent acts function as attempts to limit jouissance in the real, when the symbolic provides no protection anymore. This theory has profound implications for clinical practice. In case of neurosis, we assume that symptoms express ambivalence, conflict and repression, concerning signifiers mobilized in addressing questions of existence at the level of the unconscious. And in therapy, we will analyze such conflict via free association. In psychosis, by contrast, there is no guiding name of the father or master signifier. What is more, upon confrontations with questions of existence at the level of the unconscious, through situations in daily life, no signifier is there to represent the subject, and as a result, all subjective order goes lost. The other goes mad in psychosis. This does not imply that psychotic structure implies that all confrontations with self-directed epistemic questions and questions concerning the intentionality of the other, so not all confrontations with these lead to elementary phenomena, hallucinations and delusions. It rather implies that if there are elementary phenomena, hallucinations or delusions, we should examine as psychoanalysts whether and how specific events and situations in life destabilized a person's functioning. Metaphorically speaking, neurotic symptoms are displaced signifiers that appear in unexpected contexts. And as a result, to paraphrase Freud, they provoke the feeling that one is not the master in one's own house. Psychotic experiences, by contrast, come with perplexity and often also with dismay. They are manifestations of the unthinkable or unimaginable signifiers with which one, at least initially, feels no link. However, given that such invading signifiers interfere within the signifying chain that constitutes the subject, they cannot simply be put aside. By this imposition of a strange element in the midst of how I approach the world, such parasitic signifiers undermine the identity I experience of myself and of others. To use Freud's metaphor, 
they destabilize the idea of having a safe haven that protects against the outside world. Psychotic experiences are bombs that threaten to make the house explode or implode. The psycholytic treatment of psychosis aims at running counter to this tendency. In this respect, it could be argued that the Lacanian treatment of psychosis par excellence aims at rehabilitation. Etymologically, rehabilitation is rooted in the Latin word habitare, which means to inhabit. Lacanian psychoanalysis aims at finding and at inventing tailor-made solutions that make the house of mental life and social relations inhabitable again. Obviously, such Lacanian rehabilitation, if I may say so, is far removed from adapting individuals to societal norms and standards. It aims at finding singular solutions for experiences that threaten and undermine the subject. Practically, this implies that we don't aim at installing free association. After all, there is no repressed that should be brought to the fore. The position the analyst takes is different and aims at helping the subject find an answer in response to the perplexing or maddening situations. This response might be diverse. It could consist of finding an identification to believe in, or a habit or a practice to hold on to, or a rule to adhere to. In a minute, I will explore these possibilities via a case. To conclude the theoretical part of my paper, now a brief note on transference. In neurosis, transference implies that knowledge is attributed to the analyst, which, at the sight of the analysant, leads to occupying a specific role, like the role of the one who always feels stupid because of knowing so little or the role of the one who always ends up lying and masking aspects of reality. In psychosis, by contrast, transference tends towards what Lacan calls mortifying erotomania. This means that in transference, the patient threatens to end up feeling like a puppet, in the hands of the analyst, that is, the object, as the object of the other's jouissance. Indeed, at the level of transference, foreclosure is expressed. At the level of transference, if the patient fails to make sense of what it is that the analyst, what the analyst actually wants or aims at, this mortifying erotomania might come to the fore. Just like what is often the case outside treatment situations, the question concerning the intentionality of the other presents in treatment too. Whereas in neurosis, aspects of analytical silence and 
the not knowing position of the analyst safeguard the articulation of desire, this often have a reverse effect in psychosis. The psychotic structure can, fu can fuel the conclusion that one is the target of the analyst's jouissance, meaning the object of how he or she, in an unregulated and limitless way, satisfies his own drive. If such a conclusion comes to the fore, transference is a mere dual relation in which the patient is delivered to an obscure and merciless other. Therefore, in clinical work, the analyst should aim at installing a so-called triangular situation, which makes clear that the analyst's interventions are not guided by the highly subjective impulses and preferences, but by a guiding rationale. 